everyone. My name is Anthony Broggett. I'm a senior research fellow here at Chatham House in the Environment and Society programme. Welcome to this special edition of Climate Briefing, in which we'll be looking at water in the run-up to World Water Week. Today, we're partnering with the Knowledge, Evidence and Learning for Development programme, also known as K4D, uh, which supports the use of evidence and learning to improve the impact of development and programming. Water security has been a key theme, and over the last two years, K4D has engaged with various experts to reduce outputs related to water security, including briefing packs, infographics, and explainer videos, which are publicly available from the website of the Institute for Development Studies. With the current drought in the UK and much of continental Europe, we are all too clearly seeing the impact of climate change on water availability and how quickly this impacts on food production and affects all our daily lives even in a most prosperous and stable state like the UK. Our episode today will focus on the intersections between an emerging crisis of climate change, water security and inequality, discussing recent policy developments in water, including the Glasgow Declaration for Fair Water Footprints and what we are hoping to see on water in the upcoming COP27 conference in November. As we look forward to a more precarious future, understanding how to mainstream water into climate policy is crucial for integrating interventions that meet a variety of needs on the ground. So today I'm really delighted to have two participants in this discussion. Firstly, Carol Chafan, who is the Director of the Arab Centre for Climate Change Policies and also Cluster Lead for Climate Change and Natural Resource Sustainability at the United Nations Economic and Social Commission for Western Asia. Carol, do you want to just introduce yourself? Sure. Um, thank you, Anthony, and thank you for this invitation. ESQA is one of five regional commissions that serve the UN Secretariat under um, the UN Secretary General. For the Arab region, um, ESQA serves the 22 Arab states, and we have an Arab Center for Climate Change Policy, which has an active portfolio related to water security, climate, and of course, the nexus issues. Looking forward to the discussion. That's perfect. Thanks very much. Uh, and our second guest today is Sreen Malik, who's Executive Secretary at the African Civil Society Network for Water and Sanitation and Vice Chair of the Steering Committee on the Sanitation and Water for All Partnership. Sari, please introduce yourself. Hi, Anthony. Hi, Carol. So thank you so much as well for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be part of this podcast. Always looking for opportunities and support, really, the platforms that really allow us to get our messages out, to get voice out and really give an idea of what is happening uh, on the ground. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. And as Carol mentioned, yes, and some of these nexus issues that have been emerging quite a bit lately. That's great. Uh, yeah, so as the listeners can hear, we really have got a, a wide breadth of geographical knowledge. So maybe a question to kick off with. So given your expertise, what are the main barriers and challenges we have facing this nexus of climate security and water security? over the coming years and decades ahead. So, Carol, maybe over to you first. Thank you. The Arab region is no uh, stranger to the issue of water security and water scarcity. Um, 18 out of 22 Arab states uh, are affected by freshwater scarcity. That's over 362 million people in a region of only about 460. So we are talking this water as being central to the development priorities and, of course, responsive to climate change uh, stories. How is it related? Well, of course, we know that with increasing temperatures, and we are seeing that in the Arab region, it is increasing at a faster rate than the global average. 
actually by mid-century, temperatures might increase by one and a half degrees. You've seen in London what that means when the temperatures are that high. We see in the region what that means for agricultural productivity, changes in seasons, hydrological cycle, extreme weather events, and changes in rainfall. Because without the rainfall and without the runoff, there's no groundwater recharge and there's no water flowing down those rivers that allow us to have the water to ensure our um, health, as well as our agriculture and food security um, in the region. So some of the barriers we've been talking about that complement the water and climate um, story are challenges related to governance, integrated water resource management. Of course, the transboundary issues related to dependency. Most of our countries are downstream. The need to ensure water for all. We have a lot of displaced communities. We have uh, informal sector, uh, as in much of um, also Africa and uh, the Middle East, these urban peripheries and displaced communities are not having their access to water because of difficulty and how to balance that with host communities. And of course, how to respond to that in terms of improved efficiency, non-conventional water and desal, which is no longer non-conventional in our region. These are our challenges. How can we afford that when we think about water, food and energy in a changing climate context? Absolutely. You can see how front and centre this is of the whole society's struggles, really. So, Serene, maybe you could talk about your balances and challenges. Recently, we've been seeing, mainly in the Horn of Africa, severe drought in northern Kenya, Somalia and Ethiopia. I'm going to take those three particular countries to really illustrate what is going on. We had been told that about 700,000 camels had died. And as a result, there was this mass exodus of people within the urban centers, particularly in Addis Ababa is something that where it, it's really glaring. We also are aware that, of course, the shrinking water points, agricultural outputs which have been affected, but also women that have been severely affected by a lot of these uh, barriers and these issues. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we were preparing a proposal to deal with uh, climate change, water, and the question of gender. I'm going to leave the gender component on the side for the moment, but it was quite interesting to see when we were actually doing preparing for it, that there was still quite a bit that was lacking in terms of knowledge, that was lacking in terms of evidence. The only evidence that we could actually come up with was anecdotal evidence, which means phoning up or calling up community members and asking them firsthand what were the effects of climate change, particularly these meteorological issues or flooding or drought on their access to uh, water and their access to livelihoods in general. The other thing we also noticed was that the policies, particularly the ones regarding disaster risk reduction, preparedness and planning adaptation, were really lacking or non-existent. So these are really some of the issues that we've been seeing coming up. Yes, there's quite a bit of work that's been done, but it's still very much at the architect's level. We're not really seeing it at the community level, down there at the grassroots level. But on the other side, what we have seen is an emergence really of indigenous knowledge trying to counter a bit some of the effects of climate change and access to water. So that I think is something that we'll probably discuss a bit further on and the nature-based solutions, which I know that Lord Zach Goldsmith is a champion of. But It's really a bleak outlook. And I think it was quite concerning, the fact that we had no evidence. There was no report really that would give us the data or that would show us that this is how it has been affected, you know, or what are the initiatives that are down there on the ground, or it's then it's not being properly organized, or it's just non-existent. 
And this, of course, again, with the issues with the different policies that are on place. So there is an issue of prioritization, there's an issue of policy, and there's an issue of evidence as well and voice. That seems to be some of the big barriers as well to this uh, challenge. Maybe I could come back to you on a question in terms of the role of civil society. You've identified many of the barriers, and I know that you lead the African Civil Society Network on Water. So where do you see the role? And maybe... The end of your other intervention was, was quite bleak. Are there any positive examples that you can give us that help to show two sides in terms of the opportunities as well? What is civil society's role? I have a wonderful concrete example as to what civil society's role is. Last year at the Africa Water Week, civil society, as always, were given our session by the organisers. And this time we decided that we were going to bring The members were going to bring community members to come and really talk about the issues affecting them rather than the CSO. So their role was really coordinating and facilitating for these community members. It's available on recording. And we had a lady by the name of Elie Swan based in Mali. And she came from somewhere behind Timbuktu or really remote and isolated areas within the Sahel. And Elie Swan had just 10 minutes to present what the challenges were, but she went on for nearly 30 minutes to 45 minutes, explaining to us and telling us and telling the policymakers and the decision makers how badly affected they are by climate change and the access to water. So that is the power of civil society, that we are able to get you the Eli Swans of this world to come there and talk about the challenges and raise the profile and raise the visibility. Actually, ever since that particular event, Ellis One has been quite active in terms of discussions, her and her community members, because she was able to articulate how exactly climate change had affected them within a hostile area such as the Sahel. She talked about the shrinking water points. She talked about the fact that they really had to walk longer distances. She talked about the threat to their livelihoods, death of their animals. The, the weak and very poor agricultural outputs. And all this was really because civil society has access to the invisible. I always say, it, yes, we have census. Yes, government is doing whatever it can. But there's always this segment which is not heard. And it's generally women and girls. So that is really where we play an important role. The other important role as well that we play as well is in terms of the accountability. Now, as we were preparing these proposals we noticed that a number of countries had received huge amounts when it came to disaster risk reduction and climate change and these green funds. But the truth of the matter is that not much had been done in terms of tracking what and where and how these funds had actually been allocated and what was the work that was actually being done. Yes, for countries that have good auditor generals in place, most of the work is done. But civil society would always be critical in terms of that accountability, but also critical in terms of ensuring that the voices of women like Ellie Swan actually make it at the highest level. That's great and really encouraging that we we do have these voices. Carol, maybe I can turn to you in terms of, obviously I mentioned beforehand that you work for the United Nations Economic and Social Commission for Western Africa, Asia, sorry. I mean, the extent to which... How are they helping the Arab states bringing forward water policies? And and again, maybe some positive examples. I mean, you outlined all too graphically the threats that are being faced. Where can we look for progress, I guess, given the sort of the challenges that we're all facing? 
as Serene was mentioning, public engagement, getting the stakeholders involved at the local level is fundamental to raise that awareness and also understand what's happening on the ground. But in the end, you need policy, planning, and projects to get the work done. We have been working through intergovernmental processes, through national and subnational, and mostly regional processes to better have countries understand how to address water scarcity and water security, which is much more than just a scarcity issue, but also how it's managed across the communities and across the countries. So um, some of the activities we've been doing is, one, focusing on governance. Um, I mentioned before, um, as your audience well knows, what integrated water resource management means. But operationally, that means bringing together stakeholders, ministries of water and ministers of agriculture together on a regular basis so they can talk. Because water is um, most used in the domestic agricultural sector. And if we don't address the agriculture problem, we're going to have a problem with water availability for other purposes. So we work with the League of Arab states and our colleagues at FAO and other partners to bring those different sectors together. In order to do that, we talk about things about such as water allocation guidelines and providing the science to better inform the policy. How do we do that? Well, we have regional knowledge hubs that draw on what is happening in the field using digital technologies, remote sensing, uh, knowledge bases that countries and communities are providing, but then generating regional knowledge products and regional platforms so that countries can understand jointly what the common problems are. Because you can't talk about transboundary water unless you understand jointly what the water resource situation is across the basin. Um, that also happens at the country level. For example, we look at um, the Algerwa watershed in Algeria that runs through several um, subnational governments and seeing how they can coordinate the farming needs and the urban needs. So looking at a basin level, be it transboundary or national, we have to advocate that through a science-informed process that informs understanding and action um, on the ground. We do that also specifically through regional initiatives with our partners. We have a um, regional initiative for the assessment of climate change impacts on water, on socioeconomic vulnerability in the region called RICAR. And we actually do climate modeling with the help of our Swedish colleagues. And I say that because this is will be at uh, Stockholm Water Week. And um, Sweden has really been a leader in our region, in the Arab states, to better understand with us and our partners what are the regional implications for climate change on water and water-dependent se sectors through this RECAR initiative. And that has created an open knowledge base, a lot of maps, a lot of understanding what the vulnerability hotspots are. And what does that show? Well, we can see that the southern tier of the region where a lot of the LDCs are, where you see things from Mauritania to the southern part of Sudan to, again, what's going on, as mentioned um, before, on, on also Somalia and even Yemen, how that southern tier is really the most vulnerable when we look at projections um, to mid-century as well as the end of century. And when we have that science to understand, you can help direct resources towards that. So we help to inform policymakers and, and processes, how to provide that climate rationale. We're saying there's not enough data. Well, it's providing the climate rationale to justify and explain that there is a value, an additional impact on water caused by climate. And it's not just because we're an arid region. There are fundamental changes in the ecosystem because of climate change and how we are being able to address that requires that common knowledge, understanding, uh, identification of hotspots for moving that forward. And if I could just then take that, so we were talking about public engagement to get to policies and plans and projects. Nothing can happen without finance. And I'm happy to talk ad nauseum about this one. You need the partners to get this through, be it public Absolutely. or private. 
and you need the finance. And what we are seeing is that all the efforts understandably achieved at Glasgow and with the Paris Agreement, people are still focused on mitigation, which is fundamental. We have to reach a global goal to reduce the temperature um, below, well below that two degrees, if not 1.5 by end of century. But adaptation is now. Water is a story now. And when three times more money is going to mitigation than adaptation in the Arab region, which is so water scarce and suffering so many conflicts, or when two times more um, funding is going for energy rather than water projects and five times more going to energy rather than agriculture projects in our region, of course, we're going to have insecurity. And of course, water will be the key to that. So we need to be able to show those numbers, both through the public, through um, countries also advocating for their needs so that the financing is there that helps implement the projects that raise the issues that communities are identifying. Thank you very much. Yeah, really important figures you're you're putting out there. I mean, maybe you could just build on that a bit in terms of, you mentioned Glasgow, obviously we've got COP27 the end this year, hosted by Egypt. Are you optimistic in terms of water, water security that we'll have a slightly different focus that will deliver some of the, the things that you are pointing to that are needed? You know, I am optimistic, but I tend to be an optimistic person. <laughs> but uh, because I think I believe in the ability of people to make change yeah. once they understand that there is a challenge to address. And, uh, you know, Paris and and Morocco and Glasgow and all those processes were, again, focused on hitting that global mitigation target. But we are now hearing the secretary general saying finance has to be on parity between mitigation and adaptation. So water is all about adaptation. So when we hear about this, the Egypt presidency also has taken this up, that making adaptation and implementation central to their platform. It has been several COPs that we have not had, for example, a water day. The Egyptian government and the Ministry of Water Resource and Irrigation is working on a dedicated water day during the COP, which hasn't happened the last time. You know, agriculture has been on the agenda. Of course, the need for youth engagement and, and different um, partnerships and decarbonization. But water is on the agenda as and also has a dedicated pavilion. So there is a commitment by the Egyptian government to put water front and center Understandably, they are one of the most vulnerable to uh, the water story with over 100 million people uh, to have to uh, meet. But looking at that in a cooperative way through regional cooperation, they have put that on their agenda. And I think there is promise, uh, not only by putting water, but putting financing more so we get to implementation and not just more talk. Serene, I mean, do you want to come in on that and and maybe just talk a bit more about the sort of Glasgow Declaration on on Fair Water Footprints, which I know you're part of? Just what would you hope to see at COP in in this regard? I, having attended a number of COPs over the years, I agree with Carol in the sense that, yes, water has been muted, but we are seeing an uptake in trying to put water on the agenda. And uh, I know, for example, that the African Civil Society Network, yes, we have our members Pan-African Climate Justice Alliance that usually is very engaged in COP push with the water uh, agenda. But we have noticed as well within ANU that we have more engagements that are opening up for water within COP27. And uh, I think one of the milestone events was really the Glasgow uh, Declaration, which was part of the Fair Water Footprint uh, Initiative. So this was really in terms of a call to action for governments, the private sector in particular, uh, civil society organizations, research and learning, to really come together and support the clarion call for effective water use. 
how is it, and I, I know Carol has mentioned it, you know, in terms of how is this water actually being used? And this is really where the Glasgow Declaration, where a number of countries have signed on, uh, we are recruiting more support. We have some of the big corporations as well that are on board in terms of really seeing this collective action towards, you know, a sustainable and fair water footprint. So just very quickly, Anthony, maybe just to give a bit, you know, what is it that we're asking for? So, you know, first of all, of course, zero pollution, sustainable and equitable withdrawal and water use, full access to safe water, sanitation and hygiene for workers, working with and protecting nature and a close planning for droughts and uh, floods. So we, we do feel that this is going to be a really important initiative moving forward. It has gained quite a bit of traction, quite a bit of attention. Minister Zach Goldsmith was initially supporting it. For ourselves, this was a success in the sense that civil society actually got a big seat at the big table with support from organizations such as Water Witness, uh, from CDP, from Chatham House. So we're really hoping to see that as we get ready for COP27, where we're actually able to put water, uh, give more prominence to the issues of water against climate change. But the other thing I wanted to mention very quickly, Anthony, we talk about the future a lot, uh, that this is for the future, but our call is more in terms of the now, the present, more focus in terms of what is happening now, because we are seeing the ravages of climate change vis-a-vis water now. We are seeing these droughts now. We are seeing people not being able to access water for domestic use or for agricultural use. We're seeing it now. So it's more in terms of where some countries, and it's like you mentioned, Anthony, yes, the UK is experiencing drought, but it's still manageable, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, nobody's really gone without water. That is not the case in our environment. The moment that happens, you know, it's absolute chaos, as we're seeing in the Horn of Africa right now, or in, uh, and I think the areas that uh, uh, Carol had mentioned. So it's really important that the focus be now. Yes, there's the future, but I think for some areas, now matters a lot more. Absolutely, hear what you're saying. And maybe, yeah, we could just sort of finish up in terms of maybe divide your final comments into two timescales. Is the now, in in terms of we have Water Week, are there things that you would particularly like to see coming out of that that can build momentum towards COP27, I guess, and COP28 in, in terms of that process? And yeah, is it finance? Is it governance? Is it technology? Are there key triggers that you would like to see in, in, in both of those timescales? Or is it, I mean, I guess you, you may say it's always a combination of these things, but the extent to which you could prioritise it for our listeners to say, well, actually, this is the, the number one thing that can and should be done over the next, I mean, I guess this year, if, if we're talking around COP27. So Carol, what's your demand? Where does the optimism leave you? I like dividing on those two timescales. I mean, there's many timescales to divide on when you think about the climate, but the here and now is important, right? We have to keep on the agenda water, adaptation, finance, action now. But when we're doing now, we also really do have to think about the future. The Arab region, even with its oil-producing countries um, and balancing with the least developed countries, the Arab region is now hitting $1.4 trillion of debt. So if we are going to act and we are going to have the fiscal space to address these challenges and water, climate, don't forget there's social protection, there's conflict, there is uh, education, there is healthcare, there is so many other issues, we're going to need to find a way that is equitable, inclusive, and just. 
We talk about a just energy transition. Adaptation should be even before that justice, where that we are having the countries that are affected from the past have the present generations not suffering, but we don't want a laden burden and debt with more um, non-concessional finance so that the future, who's already bearing debt from other reasons, are now going to even have the climate problem and more of a bill to pay in the future. So we really have to think about three timeframes here, what the past has caused to the present, and let's not have the present affect more the future. One of the initiatives we are doing at ESQA is called the Climate SDG Debt Swap Donor Nexus Initiative. And we're working with countries exactly to address ways in which debt that the Arab states have with the North can be used rather than payments are being done, the interest payments going, let's say, to Germany or France, et cetera, they agree to have those payments be kept domestic. So the country still pays, but that money is now used for climate action or that country is made is being used to achieve an SDG. So it's an integrated climate SDG, sustainable development goal ambition. So that there's creating a fiscal space to respond to needs while also still being loyal to your debt payments. And then the developed countries are able to then count that as part of their climate targets or ODA, depending on how they want to classify it. So we have to find creative solutions so that we're not creating more debts. You know, a lot of people talk about green bonds and sustainability bonds and all this. This is great, especially if you need liquidity now and there's a way to crowdsource the public, the community to be able to pay for that as they invest in green bonds for the future. But we also need concessional finance grants especially for those most vulnerable countries. I mean, there's drought in the Horn of Africa. There's also floods. Southern Sudan every single year is getting knocked by floods. So those women, those children, that livestock, that agriculture, every year we're seeing them having to move and be displaced because sustainable water resource management system is not there so that these earthen dams are not being washed away every time the floods come in in July and August, as we're seeing again now. So there has to be ways to think now, but also not further burden the future um, as we think. And thinking about that in a cohesive way, regional, not only your own local community, there are issues locally, but looking at a basin, looking at the larger, and then regional provides an opportunity and costing this so action. We can't just talk, we need to cost it in order to get it into plans and finance for the future. Absolutely agree with uh, Carol's demands. And uh, to add to that is that really what we would like to see is a lot more that we have recruited pretty much everybody that needs to be recruited for the Fair Water Footprint uh, um, Initiative, for one. I agree on the issue of finance. And there's also the issue that an appreciation of the Indigenous knowledge or the knowledge that is on the ground already in terms of how communities for centuries have been dealing with uh, extreme weather patterns, droughts and floods. The reasons I, I, I say this and I know Karen uh, mentioned it, is that technology is expensive. Yes, we need financing. But this modeling, we actually did see some modeling being done, a presentation that was being done for the African Ministerial Council on Water. But it was amazing to see, you know, how, you know, there you had these predictive models, but that costs money. And you also need the systems and the structures on the ground to be able to integrate some of these uh, technologies or to integrate some of this uh, knowledge. I think more that is required in terms of evidence. Let us move beyond just anecdotal evidence. You know, it cannot be that uh, in this day and age where climate change is so central, where the issues of water are so central, that we're making phone calls to communities to ask them, you know, what is going on, because the the evidence is not necessarily there. So I think there's 
quite a bit of that, but ultimately it's really about uh, building uh, the political will and the commitment towards these issues. And that is what needs to be done now so that it can translate into policies, into legislation, into practices, into finance, into systems, so that really it can reach uh, the early swans of this world. So I think that's really what we're looking at. That is an excellent summary, I think, in terms of talking about <laughs> evidence in particular. I mean, that's for me one of the, the, the yeah. things that I've, I've really taken away from this conversation, the granularity that is needed in order to yeah. demonstrate what change is necessary on the ground that then can be replicated on a regional and then international level. But also, I, I guess I take the point about finance. And as someone who mainly works on energy and, and on mitigation, <laughs> I, I am focused in those areas and and absolutely believe on the importance and the opportunities that are created but clearly there is a, a shift as we move forward as in in some cases the energy transition does become cheaper as renewables fall in price then we need to open up more money for adaptation because we know climate change is here and it is only going to get worse so thank you both very much indeed for me it's been hugely informative we could also get more information on twitter from following K4D underscore info, but also check out the learning page um, at Institute for Development Studies. So more resources are available. Serene, Carol, I don't know if you want to plug your organizations in particular sources, feel free. <laughs> I, I would just want to highlight that we have an upcoming uh, climate finance forum um, where we're actually helping countries identify bankable projects. It's called the Arab Climate Finance Forum. You can find it at ACCP at ESQA. Um, and also our RECAR initiatives at RECAR.org. More than happy uh, to also provide any information. Open access to information is the is the spirit of regional knowledge hubs, and we have that on climate, groundwater, transboundary waters at anyone's disposable doing research or policy work. And Serene? Uh, look, I'm really just here to plug the Fair Water Footprints <laughs> Initiative. For those that are listening, please take a look. Please advocate for it. Uh, if you're civil society organizations, I'm sure you can always get in touch with all of us on this front. And it's something that is going to really gain quite a bit of importance and prominence. So we really hope to having all of you on board for this initiative. Well, thank you again. 